0: Hi, this is Pete Bauer. Welcome to the Pete Bauer Blog Podcast. I'm here as always with my daughter, Dorothea, who is the marketing guru of Sunlight Press.
1: Guru? Wow. Yeah. such an impressive title when I've accomplished so little.
0: I know, it's magic, I think. (laughs) You have accomplished so little, but you know so much. Oh Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's called marketing, by the way. Okay, so um, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was looking at writing as a hobby versus looking at it as a career. My brother-in-law had a friend of his contact me because she was interested in publishing a novella. And the first question I asked her was, do you consider this a hobby or a career? Either answer is okay, but how you answer that question determines very different paths on what you would do to try to fulfill what you're trying to do. So there are some things that are specific to whether you're doing this as a hobby or a career, and then there are some things that really should be universal either way. The three things that really should be universal either way is that you want the writing to be the best quality it can be, obviously. You're gonna want the book cover to be equal in comparison to the marketplace and you're gonna want the book professionally edited. I can't tell you how many times I have read a self-published book that simply if it would have had one more professional edit it would have been substantially better. One of the things I learned in the independent film world and learning from reading all these different books is that the one thing you don't want to do is give your audience or your reader a reason to leave the story because of something clunky in the way you're presenting the story so in a movie you see a lot of low-budget movies If the sounds off if the lighting's off if the directing's off if the acting's off well suddenly you just you're pulled out of the movie the same thing with a book I've read some really good self-published books that couldn't get out of its own way because they presented all of the characters and I'm talking five or six main characters in five different ways each so sometimes you would see a character, let's say, and it would be, she would be referenced as Dorothea. And then sometimes it would be DC. And then sometimes it would be Dorothea Bauer. And then sometimes it would be Bauer. And so you're reading the story, and when you have five people where their names are being referenced differently every time you interact with them in the book, and it's during an action sequence, well, then you're like, wait a minute, who? Oh, wait, Bauer, wait, that's DC. Oh, okay. And you've just taken the reader right out of the book so professional editing is really really important to just smooth out the edges make sure there's no obvious bumps in the road as far as the reading experience goes
1: another important part of approaching self-publishing as a career instead of a hobby is you absolutely have to stick to your deadlines and you have to be consistent with your postings if you're posting via facebook or twitter or tumblr or blog or via your personal website, people need to know when they're going to be able to visit and find new information or where to go. And if you're not consistent with updating all of those different communication channels, people are going to get really frustrated with you and they're going to be less inclined to purchase your books and whatever else you're trying to sell later on.
0: Yeah, because what you're trying to do is establish obviously a brand or a presence on the web it's no different in approach than it would be if you were trying to establish a presence in a brick-and-mortar store or something so if you were setting up shop in a strip mall somewhere you wouldn't send out just one advertisement and then just hope people show up you'd be continually trying to entice people you'd be looking for different marketing opportunities to align with other businesses in the area and things like that online you have to do that virtually you have to look for opportunities to connect with like authors or like genres or what have you and the consistency is important because people will invest money in a form of entertainment that they enjoy if they feel that the producer of that entertainment is going to be around and continually to produce more entertainment that's why it's important if you're going to approach writing as a career the thing that works right now in this landscape is book series or novella series or things like that where where consumers are confident that they're not only going to get one enjoyable experience but if they have an enjoyable experience that they have the opportunity to buy more it's part of that binge consumption model that people are doing with netflix tv shows or hulu or whatever things like that
1: there's an interesting phrase i remember you telling me growing up and that was to read an author not necessarily a book because If you really like a particular author, you're going to want to come back and hear more of the stories that they have to tell. And I know there was one experience in particular where that didn't exactly work out well for you. But I think in general, that kind of belief that if you return to someone who's produced good work before, they're going to give you something worthwhile to read or enjoy again, whether it's books or films or any other kind of entertainment.
0: Yeah, when Michael Crichton was very popular, he wrote Jurassic Park and a lot of other books that were made into movies. His books weren't really tied together, but people liked the way that he told stories. It's kind of like John Grisham or any of these other big authors like Dean Kuntz. My experience was with Charles Dickens where where I read A Tale of Two Cities and it was probably one of the most amazing reading experiences I had ever had. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can latch onto this guy and I'm going to digest all of his writing. And then I tried to read David Copperfield, and about six chapters in, I wanted to kill myself. And then I tried to read Great Expectations, and I wanted to kill myself again. So then I thought, well, maybe I just like one of his books.
1: (laughs) Well, you were very young at the time. You weren't exactly aware that Charles Dickens isn't exactly known for feel-good stories. Yes,
0: this was before the internet. So (laughs) it was more of a, oh, I have access to this book, and there's a couple of them here, and my goodness, let me go ahead and try them out. It was all those suicidal thoughts that obviously made me change my mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A good example actually of these particular characteristics that I've experienced in my life was actually through YouTube. A lot of people post videos on YouTube, but very few people post videos with the intent of being professional. And I actually came across one girl in particular. I don't follow her, but I was really impressed with what she had accomplished. She was just working a regular job when she decided she wanted to start doing makeup video tutorials. And so she started posting them and she posted very high quality tutorials, she posted them consistently, and she ended up getting a very strong fan base and she ended up getting a lot of followers on her YouTube channel because she approached it as a profession instead of just a hobby. And in the end, it worked out really well for her because not only has she been able to continue to produce these videos for her fans, but I actually saw her on a Dr. Pepper commercial. It was uh, along with Dr. Pepper's one-of-a-kind campaign, and she told her story, and it's worked out really well for her. So kind of taking all of those characteristics and applying them with whatever you're trying to do, whether it's YouTube videos or self-publishing or any other form of entertainment, you really want to make sure you're approaching it professionally if your goal is to make money and to be successful at it. There's nothing wrong with just doing it as a hobby, but one thing to be prepared for is that because the internet is so vast and because there are so many distractions out in the world today, it's going to be hard to really gain a following if you're not approaching it as a professional.
0: That's right, because if you look at her success, it follows exactly, as you mentioned, what we were talking about. First, she didn't have to do it of high quality. Right. But she chose to because she wanted to stand out above other people. She did it consistently so that she not only was creating a a brand and a presence for herself, but her fans and those interested in her subject matter knew that they could continually come back and enjoy her work. And finally, she created so much volume of material that she became known for that thing. And as you said, she approached it as a professional. And the end result is, is that that created an opportunity for her that didn't exist prior to that where she was able to work in this commercial and even expose her brand even more. So she's a good example of as you said following these basic things that if you want to be a professional you can't make excuses for not having money or not having experience or not having resources. All those things that you need are available to you you may not be able to do those things as quickly as you want. Let's say you have to save up money to get a book cover designed well, or you need to save up money for professional editing. But if that's what it takes to put out the highest quality product that you can do, then that's what you have to do. And you have to do it consistently and repeatedly so that people know whenever I read a book by Sunlight Press or whenever I see a video from that young lady, it's going to be of high quality, and it's going to be entertaining, and I'm going to enjoy it.
1: So you've been writing a lot lately.
0: <clears throat> I have, and but not... Well, writing a lot doesn't mean writing effectively. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had a... I, you know, so I, I set out for myself a, a goal for Lent of 1,500 words a day. A lot of people give up foods or things like that as a sacrifice during Lent, and since I've had Crohn's disease for over half of my life, i have strict dietary restrictions anyway so sacrificing food it really doesn't add any sacrifice to me but time is the one thing that i value the most so i thought i'm going to dedicate time during lent to create this material because this material is infused with a faith-based character so it seemed appropriate and so i was going about it and set a goal of writing 1500 words a day which i had never done before and this is 1,500 words above whatever other words I wrote during the day for work or anything else. So it was, uh, it's been a struggle. And one of the things I ran into, well, it, it was a couple of things. This experience has made me realize, like I've been writing screenplays or stories or something for like 25, 30 years, but writing novels or novellas is a relatively new experience for me. And as I was writing through this process, there are a lot of days actually most days I have found that writing is not really inspired there's I don't know I'll go to the 80-20 rule where 20 percent of the time you're fully inspired and you just the words just flow and it all makes sense and you're describing it in ways that are magic and then 80 percent of the time its well this is kinda what I mean it's not fully what I mean and I just need to get it on paper so that I can try to fashion it into what I really want, an inspired version of that later. And there were plenty of times, I think I—I I think part of the challenge I had was I was burned out from writing every day. My brain wasn't used to that. It's kind of like training for a marathon or something without ever having ran before. <laughs> so that was a challenge for me. And another part was the the first novella, the storyline, was very direct. It was a very A to B plot line. The second novella has a little more twists and turns in it and as you and I have talked about we have a very simple idea for the next chapter right and we'll go oh it's really simple we just have to do this but then we go oh but we have to realize well it's this time of day and this character is over here and the next chapter we have to be here and that character's here and it's this time of day and that couldn't happen that way and so there's all these little, I call them tentacles, but there's all this other small stuff. That the storyline is still pretty much, instead of A to B, it's probably A to B to C to D. It's not that complex, but there's just so many more moving parts in it that every time you think you have a very simple inspiration, and then when you flesh it out, you're like, oh, wait, no, this is a problem, and that's not going to work three chapters from now. And and so that's been a challenge, too. It's For me, writer's block has always come from really not knowing what i'm going to write. It's not that i think most writers block comes from you lose the story.
1: Writer's block is not knowing what to write.
0: Well, no, no because people think, yes, and that's i mean that. Because a lot of people
1: i think you mean like not knowing how to No,
0: no, no. I mean that what i mean that sincerely, a lot of people think writer's block is i can't write. And that's not true. A lot of time writer's block is i don't know what happens next. You know, so i know what happens at the end of the story but if I can figure out what happens at the beginning of the next chapter I'm writing I have writer's block I guess a better way to say it is writer's block usually comes from when you lose the story you know what the whole story is supposed to say but you've kind of lost your way and you're like okay what am I simply what what has to happen next and there are enough times in the writing of the second novella where just answering that simple question because of all the different aspects of the story was a lot more complex than the other one so I had a false false great experience with the first one because we would go oh you know this is a good idea for the next chapter and then i could just write that where this time we're like oh this is a good idea for the next chapter and i are like oh wait no that won't work because of a b and c so it's been a little more of a challenge
1: well and the interesting thing that i did not expect to be such a challenge is time of day time of day has really proven to be a big challenge in the story because suddenly the story makes absolutely no sense When you think about how much time it's taken for the characters to get to a certain point, then you look at that and go, yeah, now suddenly this thing that we were going to do makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, because in
0: your brain you're saying, well, you know what, what they do is they need to be at this location, and then they need to be at this location where this event happens. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. If this whole story started, let's say, at 8 in the morning, and this first location they go to is out of the city, well, then you're now at 9 or 10 when they get there and 11 or 12 when they get back. And so the thing you have three chapters later that should be happening at dinner is really happening at 10 at night. Well, then suddenly you're like, oh, wait, that can't happen at 10 at night. And then the thing after that, well, how is a sophomore in high school going to be out at 3 in the morning trying to solve this problem? So that's where part of those moving parts we've had trouble with, where it's like, how does this character do this thing at this time the thing that you and I have continually talked about during this process with this second novella, we want to answer all the readers' questions, especially those where they say, why doesn't the character do this? Or why don't they call this person? And a lot of those things you have to answer, and a lot of those things were tied to time of day.
1: But I do think the solution that we came up with was really impressive. I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler here. Gabby. Is the captain of the Enterprise, and Scotty's just beaming her all over the place, all over planet <laughs> <Wow>. Earth. <laughs> you
0: let that out of the bag, huh?
1: I know, I probably yeah. shouldn't have, but uh, it's yeah. an exclusive right <laughs> yeah.
0: here. Yeah, we actually have a time machine in the second one. Um, <laughs> no, wouldn't that be easy, right? That'd be fantastic. That'd be easy just to be able to stop time. <laughs>
1: Beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, get Which me. is actually not a line. That's yes, a misquote. That
0: is. It'd be great to be able to go, they need to get an hour out of town, just beam them over and beam them back, and now we have two more hours on our day schedule to fit the rest of the action in. <laughs> but we didn't. So that's been a challenge. And it's been a good challenge, though, because we feel like any time that we have a, an issue, that seems kind of insurmountable. If you can figure out a way to get out of that, the reader, we hope, will also feel it's insurmountable. And if you can get out of that situation cleverly, then the reader will also think that it's a clever escape. So that's been um, a little bit of a frustrating challenge, but I think in the end it will make a good story. But I will say this, most of this second novella is much more work than inspiration. It's living mostly in the 80% place. There's very little time where it's been, oh, this is perfect. Let me just spew this out onto the page and people can revel in my brilliance. It's almost all of it's been, I just need to get the plot out in the, in the appropriate amount of time of day so that it works. And then we'll figure out how to sprinkle it with magic pixie dust later. One other thing I wanted to clarify is, so in our last podcast, we were using the examples of brick and mortar bookstores to kind of explain our changing and evolving marketing strategy when it comes to our target audience we used examples like christian bookstores and how many times youth actually go there to buy books versus barnes and nobles or walmart or target or what have you and we just wanted to clarify that it's not that we have the intent of trying to get into those stores i mean look it would be great if you can but those were just examples brick and mortar examples of the way we're going to approach the virtual landscape when it goes to approaching our potential customers. So the point of that was that just as youth of faith shop all those normal mainstream brick and mortar stores, they're going to shop virtually at all the mainstream virtual stores. So just as we would not isolate our marketing efforts only on those Christian locations, we want to expand those to the traditional mainstream locations as well. And that leads us into the next thing where we talked about last time about using since our main character is a Catholic youth that it would obviously make sense that we would focus our initial marketing efforts on Catholic youth. And I guess the best equivalent to that when you look at all these stories like these movies like Facing the Giants or Passion of the Christ or even Noah, what did they do? The Facing the Giants movies they're made by Sherwood Pictures which is created from the Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia. So obviously it's a story about Baptists and they reached out to Baptist churches to do their initial screenings to basically get good word of mouth to expand that word of mouth into non-Baptists to other Protestants and Catholics and then those movies exploded onto the scene with a lot of momentum and that's really what we're talking about. It's not an exclusive sort of approach. It's just a logical, as we said last time, low-hanging fruit approach.
1: One of the ways that we're trying to do that is by developing a street team of Catholic youth who are really active in the community, very passionate readers and storytellers, who will go out and talk about our story, whatever their opinion is. If they think it's average, if they think it's amazing, if they think it's life-changing, or if they just think it's good. Whatever their opinion is, we want them to push the story out.
0: And one of the challenges that we've seen through our own experience outside of this book is that there's some f- segments of society that are just reluctant to anything Catholic. And a lot of that, what does that Bishop Fulton Sheen quote?
1: There are not 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. That is so much more eloquent than I remember it in my head.
0: Yeah, because he was, he was really kind of brilliant. I'm not saying you're not, of course.
1: No, I'm a guru.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So as we looked at this marketing strategy, we realized we are going to face headwinds, as they say, when it comes to some people who are just reluctant to things Catholic. You know, there's not a lot we can do about that. There's people are going to be dismissive or attack the story or the character because... Of the Catholic nature of the character and we can't really do anything about that but it's just something for me though it's surprising because as a Catholic I can watch the Facing the Giants movie and I know it's made by Baptist and so I fully expect that movie and those Baptist characters to be completely Baptist none of that offended me I didn't expect them to be Catholic versions of Baptist I expect them to be Baptist and so it always confuses me when people struggle when, I don't know, Jews are Jews in stories or Catholics are Catholics. I don't know. It's always just confused me unless, I guess maybe if I didn't like Baptist, let's say, then I guess when I'd see that movie, I'd have an issue with it. Maybe the issues that I don't understand are because of a bias that they have prior to looking at the material, that people would read a story about a Catholic character and be upset that the character's Catholic. It's like me being upset that the people in Facing the Giants were Baptist. It's just odd to me. I don't understand it.
1: And it really is interesting how true that statement is. I cannot tell you how many times I was in college and people would just come up and yell at me about my faith and about what they thought I believed in. And I remember asking them, do you actually want to talk to me? Because I'd be happy to have a respectful conversation with you about the differences in our belief structures. But they didn't. They just kind of wanted to yell at me. And so I redirected them to my Facebook.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, but I think that's, that's one of those things where sometimes you come across people that just they want to express their opinion and this happens more now in society than ever is that they want to express their opinion but they don't actually want to have a conversation you see it on tv and all those other things i mean someone comes up with an idea that you don't agree with and so the easiest thing to do is label them so you can dismiss them so it becomes the left-wing progressive nut or the right-wing religious extremist or the flat earther or whatever and that's just intellectual laziness and it frustrates me to no end because a lot of people i've had the same experience in my life where people are yelling at me or or confronting me about perceptions of the catholic church which aren't always accurate And I've learned to do what you did, which is I just say, listen, if you want to have a conversation, I'll talk to you. If you want to tell me your opinion, I know it, and I don't need to talk to you anymore because I don't need to be yelled at. Uh, I'm not here as a sounding board, I'm a person. (laughs) So if you want to engage in a conversation, I can agree to disagree with you. That's okay. We can both be mature about that, but people aren't really trained in that anymore. College, for example, used to be a place where intellectual discourse was promoted. Now, if you're a left-wing person on a right-wing campus or a right-wing person on a left-wing campus, they don't even want to hear from you. Or you see these people who, they won't even listen to, let's say, a pro-Israel presenter at a college. They'll boo or harass them and won't even let them speak. It's like, how sad is that, that you can't hear an opposing viewpoint with honest discussion and equal respect? And, and people just don't want to engage in that anymore. It's kind of sad.
1: And it really is very sad, because some of the best discussions I've had in my entire life have been with people who have very different viewpoints from my own.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the political landscape, and I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but if you look at the political landscape, for example, we've just become really lazy citizens. And it's too easy. It takes very little mental effort to dismiss segments of society so you don't have to really comprehend what they're trying to do. But I've known very liberal people and Tea Party people and libertarians and down the road Republicans and progressive liberals and Democrats and what have you and I bet all of them for example want health care to be available to people rich or poor all of them want immigration to be reformed in some way all of them want quality education all of them want the elderly to have access to care so we all agree on almost everything. So then we could have a discussion, a legitimate discussion, on how to do those things. So if you're talking about healthcare, obviously one group is going to say we should let it be free market and we should let the public and the free market forces determine what's made available as long as it's always available to everybody. And then other people want the government more involved through regulation or providing healthcare. And those are the healthy discussions we need to have. But we don't even have those anymore because as soon as it comes up, one side is dismissed by the other. And the same thing goes in religion and faith. You know, Christianity, Catholicism, those are very deep, deep faiths with thousands of years of history and tradition and thought. And to dismiss it simply because of a denominational heading is just again it goes back to intellectual laziness. So we're going to we're going to fight that. That's a reality in today's world unfortunately and we're just going to come up against it. We're just going to have to deal with it when we do.
1: I'm actually really impressed that you waited this long to have a political discussion. That's
0: <laughs> I'm very very disciplined.
1: It's a very big deal for you.
0: <laughs> well, I am I am slightly passionate about politics, not but it's so funny cuz I don't belong to any political party. I do get frustrated by corruption and wasting my money. So, and that's both parties' fault.
1: That is true. I'll just never forget when your New Year's resolution was to stop having political discussions, at least on Facebook, and absolutely no one had any faith in that.
0: (laughs) I lasted until March, and then I couldn't take it anymore. Okay, so the last thing we wanted to talk about was setting realistic goals, and this goes back to the beginning where we talked about quality expectations. And it's important to set realistic goals versus vague goals. For example, if someone were to say to you, how many books do you wanna sell? Well, you should have a number. It shouldn't be, I wanna sell a lot of books. (laughs) 10. 10 is fine. (laughs) I think it's, it's, and it's not a goal that has to be static, but a lot of people say, well, what do you want as an author? Well, I, I want to sell a lot of books. I want my book to be available at airports for people to read when they travel. I want whatever right whatever that goal is but a lot of people have very vague things like well I want my book published and I want it to sell a lot and you're like okay but that's that doesn't really mean anything a good goal should be I want to sell a thousand books and then once you reach that you go I want to sell 10,000 books and then you set very specific goals or it could be a very specific goal of I want to be a New York Times bestseller or I want to be an Amazon top 100 author in my genre whatever, but you should set very specific goals because it will drive all of your decisions in reaching them. If your goal, for example, is to sell 10 books, well, if you call enough family, you made it, right? And then you can be happy. If your goal is to sell a thousand books, well, you're going to run out of family. So then you have to figure out what to do next. And you're going to look for that core audience, that low-hanging fruit, If you wanna sell 10,000 books, well then you better have a word of mouth campaign. It better be a product that people outside of that core group are gonna be interested in, and you're gonna have to establish yourself out there and get your name out there, and it's gonna be good enough to be in competition with other books from other publishers and other authors. So all those things change how you approach from the very beginning what you're trying to do. So it is really important to set very specific goals. And personally, I like the 100, 1,000, 10,000 model. Like I I want to sell 100 books to start. And then once we reach that, I want to sell 1,000 and 10,000. And eventually, I want to sell 100,000 total. That's what I'd like. So all of my goals are set towards that goal. I don't know if I'll ever reach it. But the point is, is that that's how broad reaching I want our work to be. And so if I expect it to be broad reaching, then all of the stuff we're doing now in preparation of branding and making yourself available online and doing these podcasts and all these other videos and stuff is all part of that. So the very last thing I wanted to talk about today was, so we used to make, and I still probably would if I could, make independent movies and no-budget movies and shorts and whatever, and those were a lot of fun. But one of the frustrations I had with those is whenever I look at them, I see them, and I look at what I could have done in that situation. For example, man, if I just had a little more money, I could have had a better camera or a better microphone or a better location or we could have shot in different places or whatever and so when I look at a lot of the work that we've done from a film perspective I always look at there was so much more potential there that I couldn't reach because it was outside of my resources and the one thing I love about writing is that I know whenever we release these books which I hope to be within the year it's gonna be the best I can do right now and I'm okay with that I'm certain in five years ten years I'm gonna look back and go wow I'm a lot better now than I was then but I won't have regrets about going I should have done better then. I should have that book should have been better because it couldn't be better at that time when I look at a lot of the video projects that we did previously every single one of them I go that should have been better that could have been better because my resources did not allow me to reach whatever potential I had at the time that's one of the reasons I really loved writing and it's one of the things I wish I would have come to this conclusion 10 years ago, because it's just so much more fulfilling creatively to know that, well, whatever I got in the tank is going on the page.
1: And at the time, too, you were a low-budget filmmaker competing against Hollywood, and that's a really, really hard battle to fight. But one of the really nice parts I think about you having transitioned into writing is that there's always more room for stories in people's lives. It's not necessarily about beating the competition or selling more books than other writers necessarily, but it's about just providing a story that people are really gonna enjoy. And I think that's what we're trying to do here.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean I, I think I've been able to tell a good story for a long time, but in movies it's collaborative effort, which is kind of the cool part about it but as you said you're competing against hollywood and the the money involved in matching that in look and talent and everything is so insurmountable compared to independent films that's why all independent films look the same because they don't have money and they don't have a lot of resources so they're all they all take place in very few locations or it's a traveling with two people or something like that because it's within the limitations of how to do an independent film well But what I love about writing is that you are the writer, director, actor, scene designer, you're everything. So when you're finished with that book, the only reason it's not better is because you're not better. Oftentimes when we finished with our films, the reason it wasn't better is because of a thousand other things we didn't have control over. It's just more artistically fulfilling to me to write novels. And so I'm just very excited about it. I just wish I would have come to that conclusion earlier. So that about wraps it up, Dorothea.
1: Yes, it does.
0: Thank you for that validation. (laughs) If you want to contact us, please leave us a comment in the comment section on our blog or email us.
1: At at sunlightpress.com.
0: You do that so well. It's almost like you're a guru. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The fulfillment of a title. I'm very excited.
1: Maybe now I can update my LinkedIn.com profile. Eh, Not yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you guys next time.